10. Modeled upon Seneca and favored by cultivated audiences, the melodrama, favorite of the groundlings, which depended not on plot or characters but upon a variety of striking scenes and incidents, and the tragedy of blood, all was more or less melodramatic, like kids' Spanish tragedy, which grew more blood and thundery in Marlowe and reached a climax of horrors in Shakespeare's Titus Andronicus. It is noteworthy that Hamlet, Lear, and Macbeth all belong to this class, but the developed genius of the author raised them to a height such as the tragedy of blood had never known before. These varied types are quite enough to show with what doubtful and unguided experiments our first dramatists were engaged, like men first setting out in rafts and dugouts on an unknown sea. They are the more interesting when we remember that Shakespeare tried them all, that he is the only dramatist whose plays cover the whole range of the drama from its beginning to its decline. From the stage spectacle he developed the drama of human life, and instead of the doggerel and bombast of our first plays he gives us the poetry of Romeo and Juliet and Midsummer Night's Dream. In a word, Shakespeare brought order out of dramatic chaos. In a few short years he raised the drama from a blundering experiment to a perfection of form and expression which has never since been rivaled. I.V. Shakespeare one who reads a few of Shakespeare's great plays and then the meager story of his life is generally filled with a vague wonder. Here is an unknown country boy, poor and poorly educated according to the standards of his age, who arrives at the great city of London and goes to work at odd jobs in a theatre. In a year or two he is associated with scholars and dramatists, the masters of their age, writing plays of kings and clowns, of gentlemen and heroes and noble women all of whose lives he seems to know by intimate association. In a few years more he leads all that brilliant group of poets and dramatists who have given a dying glory to the age of Elizabeth. Play after play runs from his pen. Mighty dramas of human life and character following one another so rapidly that good work seems impossible, yet they stand the test of time, and their poetry is still unrivaled in any language. For all this great work the author apparently cares little since he makes no attempt to collect or preserve his writings. A thousand scholars have ever since been busy collecting, identifying, classifying the works which this magnificent workman tossed aside so carelessly when he abandoned the drama and retired to his native village. He has a marvelously imaginative and creative mind, but he invents few, if any, new plots or stories. He simply takes an old play or an old poem, makes it over quickly, and lo! This old familiar material glows with the deepest thoughts and the tenderest feelings that ennoble our humanity, and each new generation of men finds it more wonderful than the last. How did he do it? That is still an unanswered question and the source of our wonder. There are, in general, two theories to account for Shakespeare. The romantic school of writers have always held that in him all came from within, that his genius was his sufficient guide and that to the overmastering power of his genius alone we owe all his great works, practical, and imaginative men, on the other hand, assert that in Shakespeare all came from without, and that we must study his environment rather than his genius, if we are to understand him, he lived in a play-loving age, he studied the crowds, gave them what they wanted, and simply reflected their own thoughts and feelings, in reflecting the English crowd about him he unconsciously reflected all crowds, which are alike in all ages, hence his continued popularity, and in being guided by public sentiment he was not singular, but followed the plain path that every good dramatist has always followed to success. Probably the truth of the matter is to be found somewhere between these two extremes. Of his great genius there can be no question, 
but there are other things to consider, as we have already noticed, Shakespeare was trained, like his fellow workmen, first as an actor, second as a reviser of old plays, and last as an independent dramatist, he worked with other playwrights and learned their secret, like them, he studied and followed the public taste, and his work indicates at least three stages, from his first somewhat crude experiments to his finished masterpieces, so it would seem that in Shakespeare we have the result of hard work and of orderly human development, quite as much as of transcendent genius, life 1564-1616, two outward influences were powerful in developing the genius of Shakespeare, the little village of Stratford, center of the most beautiful and romantic district in rural England, and the great city of London, the center of the world's political activity, in one he learned to know the natural man in his natural environment, in the other, the social, the artificial man in the most unnatural of surroundings, from the register of the little parish church at Stratford-on-Avon we learn that William Shakespeare was baptized there on the 26th of April, 1564 old style, as it was customary to baptize children on the third day after birth, the 23rd of April May 3rd, according to our present calendar is generally accepted as the poet's birthday, his father, John Shakespeare, was a farmer's son from the neighboring village of Snitterfield, who came to Stratford about 1551, and began to prosper as a trader in corn, meat, leather, and other agricultural products. His mother, Mary Arden, was the daughter of a prosperous farmer, descended from an old Warwickshire family of mixed Anglo-Saxon and Norman blood. In 1559 this married couple sold a piece of land, and the document is signed, the mark of John Shakespeare the mark of Mary Shakespeare, and from this it has been generally inferred that, like the vast majority of their countrymen, neither of the poet's parents could read or write. This was probably true of his mother, but the evidence from Stratford documents now indicates that his father could write, and that he also audited the town accounts, though in attesting documents he sometimes made a mark, leaving his name to be filled in by the one who drew up the document. Of Shakespeare's education we know little except that for a few years he probably attended the endowed grammar school at Stratford, where he picked up the small Latin and less Greek to which his learned friend Ben Johnson refers, his real teachers. Meanwhile, were the men and women and the natural influences which surrounded him. Stratford is a charming little village in beautiful Warwickshire, and near at hand were the forest of Orden, the old castles of Warwick and Kenilworth, and the old Roman camps and military roads to appeal powerfully to the boy's lively imagination. Every phase of the natural beauty of this exquisite region is reflected in Shakespeare's poetry, just as his characters reflect the nobility and the littleness, the gossip, vices, emotions, prejudices, and traditions of the people about him. I saw a smith stand with his hammer, thus, the whilst his iron did on the anvil cool, with open mouth swallowing a tailor's news, who, with his shears and measure in his hand, standing on slippers, which his nimble haste had falsely thrust upon contrary feet, told of a many thousand warlike French that were embattled and ranked in count. Such passages suggest not only genius but also a keen, sympathetic observer, whose eyes see every significant detail. So with the nurse in Romeo and Juliet, whose endless gossip and vulgarity cannot quite hide a kind heart. She is simply the reflection of some forgotten nurse with whom Shakespeare had talked by the wayside. Not only the gossip but also the dreams, the unconscious poetry that sleeps in the heart of the common people, 
appeal tremendously to Shakespeare's imagination and are reflected in his greatest plays. Othello tries to tell a Kurt soldier's story of his love, but the account is like a bit of Mandeville's famous travels, teeming with the fancies that filled men's heads when the great round world was first brought to their attention by daring explorers. Here is a bit of folklore, touched by Shakespeare's exquisite fancy, which shows what one boy listened to before the fire at Halloween. She comes in shape no bigger than an agate stone on the forefinger of an alderman, drawn with a team of little enemies athwart men's noses as they lie asleep, her wagon spokes made of long spinner's legs, the cover of the wings of grass hoppers, the traces of the smallest spider's web, the collars of the moonshine's watery beams, her whip of cricket's bone, the lash of film, her wagon or a small grey-coated nap, her chariot is an empty hazelnut made by the joiner squirrel, or old grub. Time out oh mind the fairies coach mockers, and in this state she gallops night by night through lovers' brains, and then they dream of love, or lawyers' fingers, who straight dream on fees, or ladies' lips, who straight on kisses dream. So with Shakespeare's education at the hands of nature, which came from keeping his heart as well as his eyes wide open to the beauty of the world, he speaks of a horse, and we know the fine points of a thoroughbred, he mentions the duke's hounds and we hear them clambering on a fox trail, their voices match like bells in the frosty air, he stops for an instant in this week of a tragedy to note a flower, a star, a moonlit bank, a hilltop touched by the sunrise, and instantly we know what our own hearts felt but could not quite express when we saw the same thing, because he notes and remembers every significant thing in the changing panorama of earth and sky. No other writer has ever approached him in the perfect natural setting of his characters, when Shakespeare was about 14 years old his father lost his little property and fell into debt, and the boy probably left school to help support the family of younger children. What occupation he followed for the next eight years is a matter of conjecture. From evidence found in his plays, it is alleged with some show of authority that he was a country schoolmaster and a lawyer's clerk. The character of Holofernes, in Love's Labor's Lost, being the warrant for one and Shakespeare's knowledge of law terms for the other. But if we take such evidence, then Shakespeare must have been a botanist, because of his knowledge of wild flowers, a sailor, because he knows the ropes, a courtier, because of his extraordinary facility in quips and compliments and courtly language, a clown, because none other is so dull and foolish, a king, because Richard and Henry are true to life, a woman, because he has sounded the depths of a woman's feelings, and surely a Roman. Because in Coriolanus and Julius Caesar he has shown us the Roman spirit better than have the Roman writers themselves. He was everything, in his imagination, and it is impossible from a study of his scenes and characters to form a definite opinion as to his early occupation. In 1582 Shakespeare was married to Anne Hathaway, the daughter of a peasant family of Shawry, who was eight years older than her boy husband. From numerous sarcastic references to marriage made by the characters in his plays, and from the fact that he soon left his wife and family and went to London, it is generally alleged that the marriage was a hasty and unhappy one, but here again the evidence is entirely untrustworthy. In many miracles as well as in later plays it was customary to depict the seamy side of domestic life for the amusement of the crowd, and Shakespeare may have followed the public taste in this as he did in other things. The references to love and home and quiet joys in Shakespeare's plays are enough, if we take such evidence, to establish firmly the opposite supposition, that his love was a very happy one, and the fact that, 
After his enormous success in London, he retired to Stratford to live quietly with his wife and daughters, tends to the same conclusion. About the year 1587 Shakespeare left his family and went to London and joined himself to Burbage's company of players. A persistent tradition says that he had incurred the anger of Sir Thomas Lucy, first by poaching deer in that nobleman's park, and then, when hailed before a magistrate, by writing a scurrilous ballad about Sir Thomas, which so aroused the old gentleman's ire that Shakespeare was obliged to flee the country. An old record says that the poet was much given to all unluckiness in stealing venison and rabbits, the unluckiness probably consisting in getting caught himself, and not in any lack of luck in catching the rabbits. The ridicule heaped upon the Lucy family in Henry Ivy and the Merry Wives of Windsor gives some weight to this tradition. Nicholas Rowe, who published the first life of Shakespeare, is the authority for this story, but there is some reason to doubt whether at the time when Shakespeare is said to have poached in the deer park of Sir Thomas Lucy at Charlescote, there were any deer or park at the place referred to. The subject is worthy of some scant attention, if only to show how worthless is the attempt to construct out of rumor the story of a great life which, fortunately perhaps, had no contemporary biographer, of his life in London from 1587 to 1611, the period of his greatest literary activity. We know nothing definitely. We can judge only from his plays, and from these it is evident that he entered into the stirring life of England's capital with the same perfect sympathy and understanding that marked him among the plain people of his native Warwickshire. The first authentic reference to him is in 1592, when Green's bitter attack appeared, showing plainly that Shakespeare had in five years assumed an important position among playwrights. Then appeared the apology of the publishers of Green's pamphlet with their tribute to the poet's sterling character, and occasional literary references which show that he was known among his fellows as, the gentle Shakespeare. Ben Johnson says of him, I love the man and do honor his memory. On this side idolatry, as much as any, he was indeed honest, and of an open and free nature. To judge from only three of his earliest plays it would seem reasonably evident that in the first five years of his London life he had gained entrance to the society of gentlemen and scholars had caught their characteristic mannerisms and expressions, and so was ready by knowledge and observation as well as by genius to weave into his dramas the whole stirring life of the English people, the plays themselves, with the testimony of contemporaries and his business success, are strong evidence against the tradition that his life in London was wild and dissolute, like that of the typical actor and playwright of his time. Shakespeare's first work may well have been that of a general helper, an odd job man, about the theatre, but he soon became an actor, and the records of the old London theatre show that in the next ten years he gained a prominent place, though there is little reason to believe that he was counted among the stars, within two years he was at work on plays, and his course here was exactly like that of other playwrights of his time, he worked with other men, and he revised old plays before writing his own, and so gained a practical knowledge of his art. Henry V.I.C. 1590-1591 is an example of this tinkering work, in which, however, his native power is unmistakably manifest. The three parts of Henry V.I. and Richard I.I.I., which belongs with them are a succession of scenes from English chronicle history strung together very loosely, and only in the last is there any definite attempt at unity. That he soon fell under Marlowe's influence is evident from the atrocities and bombast of Titus Andronicus and Richard I.I.I. The former may have been written by both playwrights in collaboration, 
or maybe one of Marlowe's horrors left and finished by his early death and brought to an end by Shakespeare. He soon broke away from this apprentice work, and then appeared in rapid succession Love's Labor's Lost, Comedy of Errors, To Gentlemen of Verona, The First English Chronicle Plays, A Midsummer Night's Dream, and Romeo and Juliet. This order is more or less conjectural, but the wide variety of these plays, as well as their unevenness and frequent crudities, marks the first or experimental stage of Shakespeare's work. It is as if the author were trying his power, or more likely trying the temper of his audience, for it must be remembered that to please his audience was probably the ruling motive of Shakespeare, as of the other early dramatists. During the most vigorous and prolific period of his career, Shakespeare's poems, rather than his dramatic work, marked the beginning of his success. Venus and Adonis became immensely popular in London, and its dedication to the Earl of Southampton brought, according to tradition, a substantial money gift, which may have laid the foundation for Shakespeare's business success. He appears to have shrewdly invested his money, and soon became part owner of the Globe and Blackfriars theatres, in which his plays were presented by his own companies. His success and popularity grew amazingly. Within a decade of his unnoticed arrival in London he was one of the most famous actors and literary men in England. Following his experimental work there came a succession of wonderful plays. Merchant of Venice, As You Like It, Twelfth Night, Julius Caesar, Hamlet, Macbeth, Othello, King Lear, Antony and Cleopatra. The great tragedies of this period are associated with a period of gloom and sorrow in the poet's life but of its cause we have no knowledge. It may have been this unknown sorrow which turned his thoughts back to Stratford and caused, apparently, a dissatisfaction with his work and profession, but the latter is generally attributed to other causes. Actors and playwrights were in his day generally looked upon with suspicion or contempt, and Shakespeare, even in the midst of success, seems to have looked forward to the time when he could retire to Stratford to live the life of a farmer and country gentleman. His own and his father's families were first released from debt, then, in 1597, he bought new place, the finest house in Stratford, and soon added a tract of farming land to complete his estate. His profession may have prevented his acquiring the title of gentleman, or he may have only followed a custom of the time when he applied for and obtained a coat of arms for his father, and so indirectly secured the title by inheritance. His home visits grew more and more frequent till. About the year 1611, he left London and retired permanently to Stratford, though still in the prime of life. Shakespeare soon abandoned his dramatic work for the comfortable life of a country gentleman. Of his later plays, Coriolanus, Cymbeline, Winter's Tale, and Pericles show a decided falling off from his previous work, and indicate another period of experimentation, this time not to test his own powers but to catch the fickle humor of the public as is usually the case with a theater-going people. They soon turn from serious drama to sentimental or more questionable spectacles, and with Fletcher, who worked with Shakespeare and succeeded him as the first playwright of London, the decline of the drama had already begun. In 1609, however, occurred an event which gave Shakespeare his chance for a farewell to the public. An English ship disappeared, and all on board were given up for lost. A year later the sailors returned home and their arrival created intense excitement. They had been wrecked on the unknown Bermudas, and had lived there for ten months, terrified by mysterious noises which they thought came from spirits and devils. Five different accounts of this fascinating shipwreck were published, 
and the Bermudas became known as the Isle of Bibles. Shakespeare took this story which caused as much popular interest as that later shipwreck which gave us Robinson Crusoe and wove it into the Tempest. In the same year 1611 he probably sold his interest in the Globe and Blackfriars theatres, and his dramatic work was ended. A few plays were probably left unfinished and were turned over to Fletcher and other dramatists. That Shakespeare thought little of his success and had no idea that his dramas were the greatest that the world ever produced seems evident from the fact that he made no attempt to collect or publish his works, or even to save his manuscripts, which were carelessly left to stage managers of the theaters, and so found their way ultimately to the ragmen. After a few years of quiet life, of which we have less record than of hundreds of simple country gentlemen of the time. Shakespeare died on the probable anniversary of his birth, April 23, 1616. He was given a tomb in the chancel of the parish church, not because of his preeminence in literature, but because of his interest in the affairs of a country village, and in the sad irony of fate, the broad stone that covered his tomb now an object of veneration to the thousands that yearly visit the little church was inscribed as follows, Good friend, for Jesus' sake forbear to dig the dust enclosed here, Blessed may be the man that spares these stones, and cursed be he that moves my bones. This wretched doggerel, over the world's greatest poet, was intended, no doubt, as a warning to some stupid sexton, lest he should empty the grave and give the honored place to some amiable gentleman who had given more tithes to the parish. Works of Shakespeare. At the time of Shakespeare's death 21 plays existed in manuscripts in the various theaters. A few others had already been printed in quarto form and the latter are the only publications that could possibly have met with the poet's own approval. More probably they were taken down in shorthand by some listener at the play and then, pirated, by some publisher for his own profit. The first printed collection of his plays, now called the First Folio 1623, was made by two actors, Hemming and Condell, who asserted that they had access to the papers of the poet and had made a perfect edition. In order to keep the memory of so worthy a friend and fellow alive, this contains 36 of the 37 plays generally attributed to Shakespeare, Pericles being omitted. This celebrated first folio was printed from Playhouse manuscripts and from printed quartos containing many notes and changes by individual actors and stage managers. Moreover, it was full of typographical errors, though the editors alleged great care and accuracy, and so though it is the only authoritative edition we have, it is of little value in determining the dates, or the classification of the plays as they existed in Shakespeare's mind, notwithstanding this uncertainty, a careful reading of the plays and poems leaves us with an impression of four different periods of work, probably corresponding with the growth and experience of the poet's life, these are, one a period of early experimentation, it is marked by youthfulness and exuberance of imagination, by extravagance of language, and by the frequent use of rhyme couplets with his blank verse. The period dates from his arrival in London to 1595. Typical works of this first period are his early poems, Love's Labour's Lost, To Gentlemen of Verona, and Richard I.I.I., to a period of rapid growth and development, from 1595 to 1600. Such plays as The Merchant of Venice, Midsummer Night's Dream, As You Like It, and Henry I.V., all written in this period, show more careful and artistic work, better plots, and a marked increase in knowledge of human nature. 3. A period of gloom and depression, from 1600 to 1607, which marks the full maturity of his powers, 
What caused this evident sadness is unknown, but it is generally attributed to some personal experience. Coupled with the political misfortunes of his friends, Essex and Southampton, the sonnets with their note of personal disappointment, Twelfth Night, which is Shakespeare's Farewell to Murder, and his great tragedies, Hamlet, Lear, Macbeth, Othello, and Julius Caesar, belong to this period, for a period of restored serenity, of calm after storm, which marked the last years of the poet's literary work. The Winter's Tale and The Tempest are the best of his later plays, but they all show a falling off from his previous work, and indicate a second period of experimentation with the taste of a fickle public, to read in succession for plays, taking a typical work from each of the above periods is one of the very best ways of getting quickly at the real life and mind of Shakespeare. Following is a complete list with the approximate dates of his works, classified according to the above four periods. First period, early experiment, Venus and Adonis, Rate of Lucris, 1594, Titus Andronicus, Henry VI three parts, 1590-1591, Love's Laborers Lost, 1590, Comedy of Errors, To Gentlemen of Verona, 1591-1592, Richard I.I.I., 1593, Richard I.I., King John, 1594-1595, Second Period, Development, Romeo and Juliet, Midsummer Night's Dream, 1595, Merchant of Venice, Henry I.V. First Part, 1596, Henry I.V. Second Part, Merry Wives of Windsor, 1597, Much Ado About Nothing, 1598, as you like it. Henry V. 1599. Third period. Maturity and gloom. Sonnet 1600. Twelfth night. 1600. Taming of the shrew. Julius Caesar. Hamlet. Troilus and Cressida. 1601-1602. All's well that ends well. Measure for measure. 1603. Othello. 1604. King Lear. 1605. Macbeth. 1606. Antony and Cleopatra. Timon of Athens, 1607, Fourth Period, Late Experiment, Coriolanus, Pericles, 1608, Cymbeline, 1609, Winter's Tale, 1610-1611, The Tempest, 1611, Henry VII Unfinished, Classification According to Source, In History, Legend, and Story, Shakespeare found the material for nearly all his dramas, and so they are often divided into three classes called historical plays, like Richard I.I.I. and Henry V., legendary or partly historical plays, like Macbeth, King Lear, and Julius Caesar, and fictional plays, like Romeo and Juliet and the Merchant of Venice. Shakespeare invented few, if any, of the plots or stories upon which his dramas are founded, but borrowed them freely, after the custom of his age, wherever he found them, for his legendary and historical material he depended largely on Holinsch's Chronicles of England, Scotland, and Ireland, and on North's translation of Plutarch's famous lives. A full half of his plays are fictional, and in these he used the most popular romances of the day, seeming to depend most on the Italian storytellers. Only two or three of his plots, as in Love's Laborers Lost and Merry Wives of Windsor, are said to be original, and even these are doubtful. Occasionally Shakespeare made over an older play as in Henry V.I., Comedy of Errors, and Hamlet, and in one instance at least he seized upon an incident of shipwreck in which London was greatly interested, and made out of it the original and fascinating play of The Tempest, 
in much the same spirit which leads our modern playwrights when they dramatize a popular novel or a war story to catch the public fancy. Classification according to dramatic type. Shakespeare's dramas are usually divided into three classes, called tragedies, comedies, and historical plays. Strictly speaking the drama has but two divisions, tragedy and comedy, in which are included the many subordinate forms of tragicomedy, melodrama, lyric drama opera, farce, etc. A tragedy is a drama in which the principal characters are involved in desperate circumstances or led by overwhelming passions. It is invariably serious and dignified. The movement is always stately, but grows more and more rapid as it approaches the climax, and the end is always calamitous, resulting in death or dire misfortune to the principles. As Chaucer's monk says, before he begins to be well in manner of tragedy, tragedy is to seen a certain story of him that stood in great prosperity, and his wife fallen out of high degree into misery, and endeth wreckedly. A comedy, on the other hand, is a drama in which the characters are placed in more or less humorous situations. The movement is light and often murderful, and the play ends in general goodwill and happiness. The historical drama aims to present some historical age or character, and maybe either a comedy or a tragedy. The following list includes the best of Shakespeare's plays in each of the three classes, but the order indicates nearly the author's personal opinion of the relative merits of the plays in each class. Thus Merchant of Venice would be the first of the comedies for the beginner to read, and Julius Caesar is an excellent introduction to the historical plays and the tragedies, comedies, Merchant of Venice, Midsummer Night's Dream, As You Like It, Winter's Tale, The Tempest, Twelfth Night, Tragedies, Romeo and Juliet, Macbeth, Hamlet, King Lear, Othello, Historical Plays, Julius Caesar, Richard I.I.I., Henry I.V., Henry V. Coriolanus, Antony and Cleopatra, Doubtful Plays. It is reasonably certain that some of the plays generally attributed to Shakespeare are partly the work of other dramatists. The first of these doubtful plays, often called the pre-Shakespearean group, are Titus Andronicus and the first part of Henry V. I. Shakespeare probably worked with Marlowe in the two last parts of Henry V. I. and in Richard I. 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 B. Three Plays, Taming of the Shrew, Timon and Pericles are only partly Shakespeare's work, but the other authors are unknown. Henry VIII is the work of Fletcher and Shakespeare, opinion being divided as to whether Shakespeare helped Fletcher, or whether it was an unfinished work of Shakespeare which was put into Fletcher's hands for completion. To Noble Kinsman is a play not ordinarily found in editions of Shakespeare, but it is often placed among his doubtful works. The greater part of the play is undoubtedly by Fletcher, Edward III is one of several crude plays published at first anonymously and later attributed to Shakespeare by publishers who desired to sell their wares. It contains a few passages that strongly suggest Shakespeare, but the external evidence is all against his authorship. Shakespeare's Poems It is generally asserted that, if Shakespeare had written no plays, his poems alone would have given him a commanding place in the Elizabethan age. Nevertheless, in the various histories of our literature there is apparent a desire to praise and pass over all but the sonnets as rapidly as possible, and the reason may be stated frankly. His two long poems, Venus and Adonis, and The Rape of Lucrece, contain much poetic fancy, but it must be said of both that the subjects are unpleasant, and that the 